everyone. I'm Gary Nall, and you're listening to the Progressive Commentary Hour. Once a week, we take on a very important issue, and we bring in people who have expertise and a real sense of scholarship and objectivity to lay the idea out with us. Today, we have two different issues, though they are somewhat interconnected. The first is the military and intelligence domestic surveillance empire and what it means to an American public. I'll have two commentators, David Rosen, a journalist, a person specializing in investigating American history and government policy, the media and technology. His articles appear in Alternet, Counterpunch, Huffington Post, and he is also the author of Media Current, blog for Filmmaker magazine, and was a consultant for the Sundance Institute. In the past, David has served on the boards and was treasurer of PBS's independent television uh, service, as well as being an advisor to the Ford, Rockefeller, Johnson, and Benton Foundations and a consultant for Representative Richard Kephart and Apple's co-founder, Steve Wazonik. His website is davidrosenwrites.com. If we're able to locate Professor Andrew Colon, he will be joining us as well. Professor Colon is a professor of political science at Hilbert College in Hamburg, New York, where he specializes in American political thought, civil liberties, U.S. foreign policy, and constitutional law. Much of his work has focused on the conflicts between state power and democracy in the history of the U.S. turning into a police state. His latest book is State Power and Democracy Before and During the Presidency of George W. Bush, which traces the history of American politics of sowing the seeds for a national police state from the founding of the republic to the present. In the second part of our program, we will have either one or two guests, time permitting. Our first guest will be Lieutenant Colonel David Cap. David Gap is a retired Air Force a Lieutenant Colonel. He spent 31 years of his career flying fighters and then transitioned to become an international affairs specialist. He attended the U.S. Armed Forces Accident Investigation School to become one of the few experienced aircraft Class A mishap accident investigators, as well as safety board president. A combat veteran, Lieutenant Colonel Gap deployed to Southeast Asia in uh, support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. There he served as chief of the Master Air Attack Planning at the Combined Air Operations Center in charge of creating the daily air task order to support ground troops with tactical fighters and bomber aircraft in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Working for Headquarters U.S. Air Force South, Colonel Gap was chief of the Air Force's theater security cooperation programs for all of Central and South America. He is a leading activist for San Diegans for 9-11 Truth and part of the military 9-11 Truth organization. And he has some very specific questions with his extensive and unique background, virtually unchallengeable in the United States, of why he believes that it is highly improbable for all eight airline pilots voluntarily giving up control of their aircraft on 9-11, the improbability of all eight air camp airline pilots being killed without a deliberate violent flight control reaction that would have 
upended any cockpit invasion, the improbability of all eight airline pilots not entering the hijacker emergency code into the transponder, alerting the ATC of a serious problem, the improbability if the above occurred that the marginally trained hijackers could be able to operate the navigational systems and fly to specific points in airspace using instruments, flight rules that they were not trained in, and more. So we will speak with these individuals. He is one of over 2,000 specialists. I'm not talking about lay public. I'm talking about physicists and um, people who have strong academic background who are now asking questions. They simply want answers because the official version simply does not provide a coherent and reasonable and logical outcome for anyone. So that's our program. Now, if time permits, I will also be inviting Susan Lindauer, a former U.S. intelligence asset who covered anti-terrorism at the Iraqi embassy in New York uh, up until the invasion. And she also gave advance warning about 9-11 attacks. Uh, she also started talks for the Lockerbie trial with Libyan diplomats and shortly after requesting to testify before Congress after successful elements of pre-war intelligence, she became one of the first non-Arab Americans arrested on the Patriot Act as an Iraqi agent. She was accused of warning her second cousin, White House Chief of Staff Andrew Card and Secretary of State Colin Powell, that war with Iraq would have catastrophic consequences. She was subjected to one year in prison at Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth, Texas, without trial or hearing. After five years of indictment without a conviction or guilty plea, the Justice Department simply dismissed all charges five days before President Obama's inauguration. She is the author of Extreme Prejudice, the terrifying story of the Patriot Act and the cover-ups of 9-11 in Iraq. Tomorrow I will have a full special at noon from some of the world's leading authorities on why they're concerned about the official version of 9-11, where the mainstream media seems not to be concerned at all. Let's first welcome to our program, David Rosen. Nice to have you with us today, David. Thank you very much, uh, Gary, for inviting me. I, I <clears> must uh, say that I would prefer to listen to the other speakers who you have invited. They sound much more compelling in terms of their knowledge and very in-depth knowledge that they have of uh, the subjects you've discussed. I'm, you know, I... Anyway... I would beg to impressed. differ. I would beg to differ with you. I believe that you are... Uh, one of the most knowledgeable, insightful, if not humble people on the subject. I've read your article, Six Government Surveillance Programs Designed to Watch What You Do Online. Your other one, How Privacy in America Went Virtually Extinct, Just a Decade, and Just a Decade, mm -hmm. and also the new police surveillance state. Now, here's what we do on this program, David. Uh, and also, just today, Common Dreams, the surveillance system set up for the National Republican uh, meeting, ended up having, and also the, the um, in Tampa, they had a, an enormous amount uh, in of monitors, oh, over 60 cameras. Take us through step by step. What you see is the erosion of our rights and what many people are simply unaware of. How extensive is the surveillance on just regular Americans? I'm not even referring now to anyone who would be labeled as a terrorist or a known terrorist group or someone on a watch list. I'm talking about regular Americans who are now under surveillance. Well, you no longer have 
a private life in the way that Americans have been sort of assuming for the last 200 years, or at least since 225 years since the Constitution was adopted. Um, those notions are simply no longer operable. They were sort of created in a world in which people believe that something as simple as one's home, one's telephone, and then one's letters, and one's telephone conversations, even a conversation, I don't know, if it was in the mid-60s, even a conversation at a public telephone booth was considered private at one point. In the 60s, the Supreme Court ruled that that was a private conversation that couldn't be tapped and um, overseen by the, uh, the FBI. Those days are gone. Nothing you do, nothing, absolutely nothing in your personal private life is private any longer. I mean, you have to begin from that assumption that any telephone call you make, any internet search you make, any car you drive to, through any, on any bridge, through any city streets, at least in the major metropolitan area, um, any record from any commercial transaction that you make, like with a Google or any other, uh, or through Google or through Amazon or through any entity out there, anything you do is no longer private. You have to begin from that assumption that neither the federal laws, nor the police forces, nor private corporations, whether they be your phone company or uh, what's called a data aggregator, like a LexisNexis or others, actually all that data is being kept active in 24-7 real time and shared intimately back and forth without even the, 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 uh, the assumption that a court order is required to get this data. Nothing is private any longer. We have to start from that assumption. And that's the, that's the reality that we live with in 21st century sort of digital information America, that nothing is private. And it's a scary kind of thing. I mean, for me personally, when I raise this to other uh, people, friends of mine, or people I meet through the course of the day, I mean, it doesn't seem to offend people. I mean, there's a weird other part of this that, that people assume that they have nothing to hide, and B, that um, there's too much stuff out there and people will never find it. So uh, it, we live in this kind of a psychotic state in America where everything is known by the, by the government and, and corporations which share the data, and people live their life as if it doesn't matter. So I don't know if that helps sort of frame the discussion. I hope it does. Um, and I can drill down both on the government uh, side, the federal as well as, I mean, we have to remember that this is taking place both at the federal level with every agency, whether it's the IRS or the Department of Defense or you name it, or state and local governments, which have this, uh, are implementing comparable programs, and two is they're sharing information back and forth. And then on the second side, the government and the private corporate interests are doing the you know, same kind of things of sharing information, selling it back and forth, and using it in a whole host of different ways, which we can discuss. David, I appreciate your opening statement. Now, the nature of this program is that I will ask a few very um, high-arching questions and then stay silent so you really have an opportunity uninterrupted to use this as a classroom on the air to really educate the audience. Okay. So no need to hold back and, and take a short answer on any of this. Let us now go over and say hello to Professor Andrew Colon. Professor Colon, nice to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back to your program. Would you start by giving us your 
overview of what you see the problem to be when it comes to two things. The, um, the type of intelligence um, and that is gathered on surveilling the lives of average Americans. And then what could possibly be the motive if we know that 99% or more of all Americans have never participated in, in an act of violence against the country or subversion of our rights, and therefore are just regular people, what then is the emphasis of putting tens of billions of dollars a year into these at least that we know 16 major intelligence operations none of these operations are accountable or auditable why are they doing all this what is the background to this i'd like to answer the two parts of what you're posing the question to look at the historical roots of what I have discussed uh, in my book and in various articles as the formation of a, a police state, which has become full-blown in post-9-11 America, and which a previous speaker has um, very correctly pointed to, and what is now we're living in the uh, 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 police state of post-9-11 America, is that we are in now, um, which allows all this to happen, we are in a permanent state of national emergency. President Bush declared it, and Obama reaffirmed it in 2009. And um, this is the new normal, uh, sadly, I say, of post-9-11 America, in which, um, in this, um, in the, for the reason of fighting this so-called war on terrorism as the new uh, external enemy replacing communism, now the government feels it can take any number of extraordinary measures from the Patriot Act to preventive detention to this incredible massive surveillance. But if you look at the particulars of all this, there's, these kind of practices are in keeping with uh, a number of police states. The disappearance of civil liberties um, can, uh, is now ongoing and, and wholesale, and as I say, this new normal, because the president has no restraint on his power. He is the head of a specialized part of the government in which security trumps all, and especially it trumps civil liberties. Okay, now let's continue on that line, please. When you look at this administration, both Democrat and Republican, with some exceptions, Ron Paul might be an exception, Dennis Kucinich an exception, Bernie Sanders an exception, but by and large, we have seen with the Patriot Act One, the Patriot Act II, the National Defense Authorization Act, Homeland Security Act, We've seen a large consensus of both houses joining together to say yes. We've also seen that right now we have 18 million hungry children, 100 million Americans who are live, living off some form of public assistance or government aid, 48 million on food stamps, 100 million under the poverty level or at the poverty level, and yet nothing is being done for them at all. But according to Professor Joseph Stiglitz, uh, from Columbia University, won the Nobel Prize in Economics, we will be indebted to at least $6 trillion in the foreseeable future because of our excursions into Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, how in the world do we balance the idea that we have an open checkbook for any amount of money to spend when it comes to our foreign adventures or military spying or new technology to spy and read people's emails or uh, look at their photographs or anything that they're choosing to do and listen to their phone calls. And yet we can't even put food on the table for 18 million children. How has this come about? How is this possible? 
I, I, I argue I, I argue that this is in keeping with the ongoing articulation of internal and external threats, this new one being terrorism replacing communism, but what maintains um, uh, this, um, what I call the horrible choice of choosing uh, guns over butter, is that America has been for, um, since the period of World War II, in a state of, a permanent state of war-making, in, in which um, we um, send bases, there are over 1,200 of them around the globe now, to maintain an American empire. And um, I'd like to think there may be something hopeful about this horrible state of affairs because other empires have collapsed because they have overextended. Look at the British. They have had to pull back. And I say that there may be uh, a growing consensus, um, not just in the United States, but globally, to rein in this, um, this, this American empire, which um, is leading to the collapse of our infrastructure, is um, making us make some horrible choices. Take this a little further, if you would, please. Since you have specialized in, in understanding U.S. foreign policy, and especially the conflicts between state power and democracy. Take a look at how our, our putting bases all over the world, constantly intimidating China and Russia with their, our current policies of encirclement and getting uh, people to be on our side in those areas. And then our s surveillance schemes and strategies Who's behind this? We know that Google and Apple both have been involved in the telecoms, but who's really behind it? I can't believe that anyone, especially the presidents, because in my opinion, they are not the best and brightest. They might have gone to some schools and gotten some good grades, but I have yet to see any of these people do anything that's meaningful to reverse any of the damage done. Instead, I see high-level technocrats. So who's behind this whole scheme? And then how does it play out? How does the people in the how do the people in the military industrial complex, how do they manage to get members of Congress, and especially on the special committees, to give them unlimited, frequently no compete contracts to build bases or to spend money that we will have no value in it whatsoever? All of which we're supposed to pay for on the sweat of our hard labor. The form is yours, take your time. I think we have to sort of understand two things from my perspective. One is economic structures, the restructuring of the American economy that's taking place under, under the pressure of how capital is reorganizing the globe. And so we see both a push to, you know, the, the, the way that capital works is it's globalizing itself and the media and the technologies uh, have permitted this to take place. And so whether it's banking principally through the financial institutions, but also other secondary institutions of manufacturing and other and production. So on one level, we're seeing the restructuring of the global economy and which the United States is, and is trying to play catch up because the corporate powers that control the domestic sort of power structure in this, company, in this country have already left. They've left. They've now encircled the globe and they're looking for the greatest maximization of process on a, on a, uh, on a world order. The military plays a secondary role to maintain and, and support and protect those interests. And so what we're, which I, my way of framing this discussion is what we're seeing in the domestic surveillance and tracking, you know, with all the spy state is really an extension of the U.S., the first, uh, if you will, the, the first um, uh, military industrial complex into the, the imposing those same forces 
on the domestic market because they're anticipating, as has happened before, the, 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 the disquiet within the American public as their life is being restructured and the, the imposition of poverty and austerity on the American public. America's being, that's the starting point for my consideration. We're being restructured as, a, as globalization takes effect, and we're turning more and more into an oligarchy-run society in which the, both the government as well as the local police forces, etc., are organized to preserve the power institutions. We're going back 100 years to the robber barons of old, and what we're using is 21st technology to impose and discipline the population through mass media, through surveillance, etc., so the military-industrial complex is really extending itself into the domestic sphere, both in terms of the, the way that it works, I mean, and I think you described it quite adequately, in terms of it has enormous influence at the congressional level through companies like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, et cetera, et cetera. You, just, you know, the list goes on and on. We know who those guys are, and we're seeing their parallel in terms of the surveillance and information capture and and aggregation of, of content and how that's being used, information is being used to basically monitor the public. Um, so I think we need to look at this as part of the restructuring process, the fiscal crisis of the state that, or, or capital that took place in 2008-2009 is really a reflection of a, a, this larger process of, uh, of capitalism really exploding out of itself with no boundaries, no control, and no one having any kind of sense of responsibility or, or even um, national identity. So, I, and then the military, you're focusing specifically in terms of how the military-industrial complex is playing out to support and maintain that system of finance capital. It, it, you know, it, it's a parallel to the way it's played for the last 50 years in terms of the oil industry and the, and the energy industries, and, and, and uh, you know, critical uh, Middle East or Latin America or Central America or Southeast Asia and how that played itself out during the first, the latter half of the 20th century. What we're witnessing now is a failed, to me, it's a, it's a failed policy. I mean, the containment is a fool's game by the United States in terms of these various military bases all over. It's playing a catch-up game in which it can't compete globally with the restructuring. I mean, whether it's Europe, once it recovers from this particular crisis, or whether China, as it, as it, and Southeast Asia as a whole, because again, there will be satellite states of China, um, strengthen their position as, as producing their own internal markets, will drain enormous resources and money out of the United States, which essentially you and I will be paying for forever to maintain this, this military to protect the vested interest of, the, of this financial capital. I appreciate those insights, uh, David. Thank you. Sure. Back to you, uh, Professor Colin. Let me give you an overarching issue, and then if you would address it, please. Sure. And then, David, after that, please offer your insights as well. Thank you. I'm going to lay out a hypothesis, purely speculative, but I'd like to see if there's any way that this bears any resemblance to what is happening. Two weeks ago, I was counseling one of the people, I counsel every day people, and this was the wife of a uh, hedge fund runner. And the, it just at the end of the conversation where I was helping her with her health, she was mentioning how she is preparing along with her husband and, and some other people to have a, a safe harbor, she was calling it, out in the country. There's going to be out in Montana. And I say, why so? Solar storms? Uh, earthquake, uh, environmental uh, 
catastrophe, what exactly is motivating you? She says, no, people. That's what, what people. She says, well, you know there's a lot of social unrest that's out there, and we feel it's going to get a lot worse. I said, so you're, what, you're, you're building yourself a nice place uh, with all the accommodation luxury to stay, to keep, uh, people might be angry. And I said, did you ever look at how your husband makes his money? And is any of that uh, today would be considered unethical or immoral, even if it's legal? And did you ever ask, do we need to make this amount of money uh, in order to feel good about ourselves? And her answer was that she kind of changed her energy at that point and says, we believe we have a right to make any amount of money we want in any way we want, providing it's legal. But the fact that most Americans are not as bright as my husband, and I'm listening to what she's saying. And what she ended up saying was, for those who are rich and powerful, there's a certain percentage that will never consider the consequences to others of their actions. They don't care what happens to other people. Now, therefore, for those people and the power that they hold when they have their special universal summits once a year out in Utah, they meet at a man named investment banker named Alan, and all of them are there. You'll see the Rupert Murdochs and the Bill, uh, Bill Gates and the Warren Buffetts, all the top leaders of industry, irrespective. Their politics is immaterial. And you'll see George Soros or the Koch brothers there. They're all finding common ground. These are the people who, unelected, decide they know what's best for the world. And therefore, their, theirs is a prerogative to lead. Ours is to be quiet. So then we take a look at what's happening now. Let's jump over to Greece. It is my belief that within the next 12 months, Greece will simply implode in civil and social anarchy. Granted, they have a body politic that is substantially pro-International Monetary Fund and European Central Bank bailout. Granted, they're willing to make great cuts in people's uh, social security nets, their pensions, their payroll, to cut 40,000 more jobs out, to reduce the minimum wage, but they're not the ones who end up suffering from it. These are all well-to-do people. I believe that the public's going to push back, and when they do, the next time they push back, it'll be to throw the entire government out and to get populists in their place. I believe Spain is a heartbeat away from doing it once someone else does it, Portugal behind that, and possibly Italy. I doubt Ireland would, but those are the ones most likely. That will have an effect upon the United States. And what people in power frequently do is they say, A, how can I continue my power without challenge? B, how can I hold on to everything I've made from my power without anyone holding me accountable legally or socially and taking it away? Then my question is, is it possible that for no other reason than the, the, the hubris of those who have this power, that they're willing to create a police state apparatus to protect them and the rewards that they have and the privileges they have, just like Putin does. Putin has the largest, I was told, by someone very high up in the, in, in the uh, Russian uh, body politic, one of the largest private watch collections in the world. It's estimated as worth to be over $50 billion. And everyone there knows that he gets a piece of everything, yet everything everyone else knows, you do not dare cross him because he has the full backing of the state to put you in prison as he does. 
Why should we assume that American politicians, American corporate leaders, American Americans who are in a position to facilitate this would be any less uh, capable of doing that? Over to you, Professor Colon. It's a very interesting comment. Um, I do feel that the political and economic elites can only hold on to power if they can wage uh, first an ongoing assault on mass democracy, which they, I, I argue, and I say this with great regret and certainly feel take issue with this, they in large part have been successful in doing. Um, they've done this by maintaining articulation of enemies inside and outside the United States. They targeted socialists and now terrorists and use that as a means to silence all. But I want to get back to what, what you really said. And again, I'd like to strike a bit of a somewhat cautious, optimistic note. Um, what you first described when you began your commentary is of uh, people who want to join the elites and, and um, live in Beverly Hills, etc., the you know, quintessential ideology of a, of a capitalist uh, economy. And that has somewhat been their mantra of what manifests itself as a divide-and-conquer strategy. But the problem is, is now here we are, um, where many people can no longer achieve, um, most of us cannot get to Beverly Hills or live the life, um, that, live that kind of life. Most people are struggling. Most people are being disenfranchised. And while you have your few success stories of what I would call winning the lottery, um, most people are struggling to get by and are increasingly down and out. The clearest evidence of that, of what's happening, and I believe will lead to an increasing radicalization, is, as I'm sure you all know, your listeners know, is the ongoing disappearance of the American middle class. And that we have now, um, uh, the vast majority of students are deeply in debt. They are um, being, um, they are going to be in debt for uh, most students typically I see from, um, from twenty to $50,000. Now, when people are being um, in large numbers so disenfranchised, so being um, assaulted in many ways, I believe this will draw their attention perhaps to um, doing something about it. And I feel that when we have the increasing impoverishment of the middle class, of professionals, of academics, of students, I think attention will increasingly be drawn to, which at least in part the occupation movement has drawn attention to, is the lack of economic democracy in America. And if I can predict of an issue that may emerge in fits and starts and take off, I believe that will be the issue. The fact that um, the workers do the work and they don't run the factories and that why I think there will be an increasing questioning of why the few are organizing our economic and political priorities I appreciate those Good. insights, thank you Professor Cullen and would you follow up with your insights sure. Dave? Uh, I, I would like to reframe it slightly because I think that in two senses I'd like to reframe it one is historically, and two is by expanding the scope of your discussion slightly. Let me focus first on the historical part. America went through a very comparable period analogous to this, not the same, but analogous to this, in the early 20th century, culminating first in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the catastrophe around the First World War and the crisis that Wilson ended up bringing us into war. He was elected and re-elected, rather, on a, that he wouldn't bring the United States into war. And what happened, of course, is in the face of the war, there was enormous opposition 
both from nativists who opposed any kind of foreign intervention and also people who were socialists who believed that, that the war is being fought for capitalist purposes. I mean, again, the First World War ended international socialism forever. It's never actually regained itself. It's never became a force. That's what the role of the First World War did. It triumphed nationalism. Now what we're now and so what happened, this thing spun out until between nineteen thirteen and nineteen twenty, say, what we saw is enormous power of the right wing to impose these, these uh, particularly uh, over um, the expulsion of what they perceived to be foreign threats in the United States, that is, the, what culminated in the Palmer raids. This was a period of enormous kind of social violence in the United States that's really unprecedented. We have not seen anything like this since. I mean, the civil rights movements, even the Black Panthers were like, and the weather people were just a, a kind of a sideshow to the kind of violence that took place at, at, at both strikes, but also anarchist uh, in, uh, activities during this period. Nonetheless, we formed a police state. This is where the real police state took shape under Palmer, but mostly under, under Hoover, and the creation of the use of intelligence and data gathering, and particularly this kind of surveillance with, with uh, early, we're dealing with early technology, so fingerprinting became the critical factor in, and also the harnessing of of uh, spies who were sent out and, and people were used, uh, all kinds of uh, co-workers and relatives and people who lived in apartment buildings, all this kind of information was captured and stored by Hoover. And he used this not only to impose the, the Palmer raids and expel close to a thousand Americans or people who were living in the United States were, were forced out of the country. But he also used that effectively to build an anti-communist movement that really, took, that really came to culminate after the Second World War. Now, the second factor, which I want to, and then I'll tie together. I apologize if, I'm, if I appear to be wandering. The second thing is the culture wars. And you haven't really talked about the role that the culture wars plays in disciplining the population. And we're seeing, again, this is a very parallel movement to the, 20, to the teens and 20s in the United States, which culminated... Again, it was an anti-six, but culminating in prohibition, and the crisis of cap, uh, the crisis of manufacturing in the United States to discipline the population over 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 prohibition, which was an utter and absolute failure, which created the modern corporate gangsters, and you know, it led to many arrests and all kinds of corruption and the whole uh, way in which the modern sort of um, political system sort of works now. If you take these two threads, one is the, the, the politics of sort of the imposition of a kind of foreign, a foreign policy with a very strong police, um, quasi-police state through the federal agencies. That's what's critical here with, with Hoover, is the creation of the police state with the federal oversight over the whole domestic economy. Domestic. And two is the culture wars, disciplining women's sexuality, the fear of women as being sexual creatures, and the um, and prohibition. If you see that as parallel to what we've got today, what, what's interesting, the, and, I, and, I, and I apologize if I seem to be pessimistic, is that the only thing that could stop capital at this point um, was a social crisis that they couldn't control. And that was the Depression. And they could not control that. That so the question I would like to, and that led to Roosevelt's election, the movement of the population as a whole, not only sort of progressives, etc., but the population as a whole away from those kind of simplistic 
nationalistic sort of God-fearing answers that the the establishment offers every time, and they we're offering now to the Republican Party in absolutely clearest terms. I mean, they've this is the party of of of, a, of the robber barons. It's unabashedly reactionary to the core. This this the Republican Party today, and it's the last. It's really trying to impose the discipline that it had over the society a hundred years ago. That's what they're doing today. So I don't know, other than a social crisis of the magnitude of, you know, and Obama, for whatever better, the fiscal, was able to preserve capital in terms of the banking institutions. Had he let that crisis play itself out, I mean, it would be a very interesting situation for all of us, socially as well as economically and politically. But he, you know, he bend, he's a moderate, he, he's accommodating, that's his role. He, he, under, you know, he bailed out the banks. And he basically stabilized, for the short term at least, capital. Uh, well, did, let, let me intercede here for a moment sure. and see if this makes any sense to you, David. Uh, as a progressive and not aligned with either the left or the right, which are now corporatist left and right, we have the corporate Democrats and corporate Republicans. The Republicans have nothing in value with the the more ethical conservative values of Eisenhower, nor the ethical considered liberal values of, of FDR. What I see today is just the opposite. I see, I see the following, and I'm looking at this not from the top up, but from the bottom down. I just finished two years traveling around the United States. Right now, we have over 12 million senior citizens who are not able to adapt to this crisis, and they have no advocates, nothing's being done to help them. We have 18 million hungry children in the United States. We have 46 million Americans on, on food stamps, and it's going to increase. Now, here's where it gets rough. 55% of all graduates in college today are underemployed or unemployed living at home. The problem is the laws written and upheld by uh, Bush and upheld by Obama do not allow anyone to get out of any of their uh, student loans right. or bankruptcy. Instead, you have actual SWAT teams in California that went to look for someone who hadn't paid their bill in six months. And now the latest thing is that hundreds of thousands of senior citizens are having their Social Security garnished to pay the banks up to 15%. And you know what that would mean for most uh, senior citizens on student loans that they had uh, co-signed and oh. hence are legally liable. On top of that, we keep hearing from both Obama and from and from uh, Mitt Romney that um, both are capable of, of creating jobs. I don't see that for three reasons, and this ties also into one of the consequences of having a military industrial police state. A, you have, you have today 32.5% of all American families have a net worth of zero or less than zero, the most in American history, in fact, more than in the Great Depression. You also have a decrease of 7.3% in the medium income in the last three years. From the Pew Research Center, 61% of all Americans uh, in 1971 considered themselves middle class. Today, the working middle income is over 50%, meaning they can't make it, and therefore, they're living off their credit cards. People are paying for food, for utilities, for car payments on their credit card, but because that is a debt payment, uh, meaning paying a debt and, and, and then creating a debt, 
the the alchemy of of uh, Wall Street and Washington says, isn't this great? We had such and such growth domestic product. No, debt is not an asset. And, and yet that is what we're assuming. Instead of people paying for things with disposable income, they are paying and creating debt, and that debt is giving them compounding interest, late payments and fees, which banks love. On a debit card, it can go as high as 1,500%. So now what you have is you have 300% more people getting food stamps than jobs being added since June. You have, um, since Barack Obama entered the White House, the number of long-term unemployed has risen from 2.7 million to 5.2 million. And according to a report from the National Employment Law Project, 58% of the jobs that have been created are all at the low end. 24.6% of Americans say that they, and also from the Center for Economic and Policy Research, that they have good jobs. That means 75% of all Americans have bad jobs. They're not able to sustain themselves. Right. Now, from 2000 till today, 12 years, almost 13 years, we've been losing an average of 13 factories a day. But since this year, we are losing 36 factories every 24 hours. We've lost over 58,000 factories. And yet, here both parties are saying, and this is where I believe that our security state is in part, in part, um, scaring people that you are get, we're going to get you jobs. And I'm saying, how in the world can you create any new jobs or replace the factory jobs that have been lost when all the people in power, both from Clinton and, and, uh, and Obama and Bush and Reagan, all have been engaged in outsourcing, hedge funds, equity partnerships, and most importantly, those banks that we said we had to save, which I believe we should have let go through structured bankruptcy and break them up. Those... Those are the people who benefit. So they make more money buying a good, well, good company in the United States that has low debt than loading it up with uh, its debt at uh, up to up to two to three times what it purchased it for. This is what equity partners do, like Bain Capital. Then outsourcing that when it can't afford to do anything more, taking the brand name, keeping the brand name, having it made in China, India, and Bangladesh at from 14 cents an hour in Bangladesh to $1 an hour in China, bringing back those shirts, the pillowcases, and, and the sweaters, the plates, and, and the mm -hmm. shoes. And then you say, but we're going to get your job back. And the guy says, well, hold on. I used to make $28 an hour and now I can only find $6 an hour, $8 an hour. How's that coming back? How are you going to suddenly tell the world, since we're part of the World Trade Organization, we're going to create barriers or we're going to create tariffs? You can't do that. And now you want to throw another major treaty on top of it, the Trans-Pacific Treaty, which would make it virtually impossible. Right. Right. So where and exactly is the jobs coming back? I don't see any jobs coming back. Why in the world has the media even touched on the idea that 8.2 million highly qualified, very disciplined, and very well-educated foreigners got visas to come in and take the place of highly disciplined, very well-educated uh, American workers, but it half or left the price and none of the benefits? We have virtually eviscerated our upper middle class and professional classes in the United States. You can get medical doctors, you can get lawyers, you can get engineers coming in from India, and they'll work for next to nothing. 
So now we've got we've got our good jobs and senior jobs being taken away. Our unions are being eviscerated. Many of that that is happening with the cooperation of the head unions selling out their own rank and file. We have the treaties of which Obama is the architect, the single architect of the worst treaty in world history. It will absolutely do an ass beat down on every working American, unlike anything you've ever seen in your life. So where exactly are we going to have renaissance, rejuvenation, a pushback, a pullback, or an ex uh, something that exceeds the status quo? The thought is mine. The answer is yours. Please well, address well, Gary, it. Gary, I have to tell you, I wrote an article a while ago calling, Will Only a Depression Save Us? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm an old 60s kind of guy, and I um, have this kind of naive hope that uh, an, alternative, uh, an alternative kind of movement can, like Occupy Wall Street can actually take root and reach a course, particularly the, the social divides between the, if you will, the urban, more sophisticated, and, and small-town America, which is white and racist. Uh, I, I don't mean to be sort of prejudiced, but... It, 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 well, you're which, right. Which is what the Republicans are counting on, this kind of white backlash, the fear of, of the threat that... that that the new immigrants and, and the demands that ordinary people are imposing. We have to, I don't know, I honestly, I get pessimistic and it scares me and I, you know, is that, is that the, all the grievances you identified, which I fully concur and I'm, you know, and I'm sure you've got a laundry list of more that you can, you can specify. The question becomes to me is that the, maybe only in a, in a social crisis of, of real magnitude will the movement we're, we're at that moment was it fascism or socialism and the, I hope we don't get to that point I truly don't because I terrify I'm fearful and I'm of the of the power of the state and the power of of both the, the, the professional sort of uh, police apparatus and military but also the private police uh, and and you know the X corporation etc or Z corporation I forget what they're called now um, but these private you know militias that are out there and, and uh, I'm terrified of the possibility I don't think that either Obama or Romney have answers to the real questions that are haunting this country and that um, they can't offer an alternative. I mean, and I think it's lip service. And maybe, and in fact, I mean, I played this devil's advocate role with some friends when we were watching the, when we were watching the convention of saying, well, what if Obama loses? Maybe there's a real opportunity in the four years under, it's going to be horrible in terms of the evisceration of social programs under Romney. But it may break the back of a kind of complacency that the Democrats have. I mean, they're complete, many of them, uh, particularly established Democrats are completely complicit in this game that we're watching. I mean, they were, they were the guys who backed, you know, um, Robert uh, Rubin. In the Robert event. Rubin. Right. And so we can see this. And maybe it's only in that kind of crisis that something that, quote-unquote, the Democrats or progressives can, can move outside of this kind of handshake agreement between the two guys in terms of serving the interests of corporate power. Okay, but I don't see that... Well, I don't see you're using the term progressives and Democrats. Well, I, I don't just, make that connection. I see Democrats and liberal and corporate Democrats. Those who are truly progressive have broken rank and found become independents. And right now... 50% of the voters in the United States declare themselves independent. Right. Okay. Call it what you want. I mean, I, have a, I was with a friend of mine the other day, and she's from Georgia. And she was saying, you know, you're down in Georgia. There's all, you have no choice. There is only the Democrats to fight against the, the right wing and the Republicans down there. So a lot of the country, the, the art 
I mean, I agree with you in terms of the, the segmentation of the kind of political spectrum. But I think for many people in this country, Democrats represent something about democracy, about multiculturalism, about a future where people share and care about That is the illusion. Right, I agree. That I is not the reality. No, it's, it's, right, it's the appeal. That's correct, and they're appealing to people who they've already taken advantage of. That, I agree, that's what I, I found agree. so I'm appalling. Just saying, I think that only in a social crisis, that, uh, that's my challenge to you, is asking well, you... Well, here's what I've said, and, and I think this answers your very insightful uh, thought on this, David. I believe that only with a breakdown can we have a breakthrough. Okay. We're but I believe it all is going to break down because I don't know a single institution in the United States that has not compromised its values from what it once was, if it ever had them, and now it's just self-serving in their own interest. Go back to you, Professor Andrew Colon. We have 14 minutes left, uh, 12 minutes left in this program. I'd like for you to address this. And also, this reminds me of something. I'm sure you've seen the violence now and the militarization of our police. Mm-hmm. And the fact that almost no one—what are, are they incapable in in in, um, in officers training to tell someone to shoot them in the leg so you don't kill them? Why is everything a kill shot, including when you got 14 cops surrounding a guy with a knife and you could easily shoot him in the leg or taser him? Instead, it's always a kill shot. It was Mussolini, Benito Mussolini, who said, "You know what I think about violence? For me, it is a profound moral and." Uh, than compromises and transactions. Yet it was also at the same time, Martin Luther King who said nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon. It is a weapon unique in history which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it. It is a sword that heals. And I see every administration becoming more and more violent and threatening violence from waterboarding to the president currently intentionally signing legislation that makes him capable of even doing something that the mafia dons couldn't do. To whack a guy, you had to get permission to the other mafia dons. This guy can just decide you're an enemy combatant and have you whacked. Your thoughts on this, please. Wow, you cover a lot here. Let me just um, try and focus on a couple things here regarding the police. Um, there's certainly a key element of any police state, certainly on the local level, but what we see certainly which stepped up big time in the Obama administration and, um, and in some ways he's gone much further than even the Bush administration, which I thought would not, was not at all possible, is we see the increasing militarization of the police with all their um, doing their best, which they've done quite well to get all this high-tech stuff. But let's not fool ourselves what the police are in reality in a political sense. I speak here as a political scientist. They're agents of the state. And as acting as agents of the state, their primary role has been, and increasingly so with their militarization, is to treat any and all uh, dissent as suspect, as um, something very scary. I mean, these are uh, viewed, the police view protesters as enemies of the state. Why, just with the, uh, the conclusion of the um, Democrat convention, the same was true with the Republican convention, where um, those who dare protest were put in fenced-in areas and guarded by the police, and the police were beating up. I was reading some articles recently of anyone who dare uh, express any disagreement with um, Obama administration and policy. Um, the police have served as an anti-democratic force. They have throughout U.S 
U.S. history. Look at the Red Squads. I mean, I'm, I teach in the Buffalo area, and it was quite a, it's been quite an active and uh, quite an active Red Squad up here, which has reappeared. And their role is to infiltrate and to snuff out any mass you know, um, democracy. Uh, of course, applying the label of of terrorist uh, and and uh, and before that, um, uh, a communist. And the implication of that is that we have uh, this police state in which uh, everything is settled by violence. And uh, Obama, in this sense, uh, really has um, uh, gone, as I said, a lot further than um, Bush has. Look at what we have now with uh, Obama. We have extrajudicial executions. Now, I, I was quite shocked at how this is the new normal, that the media is going over this new book, and, well, should this have been released, you know, keep the state more, even more secret than it is. Let's um, uh, make sure there is absolutely no information released. Um, and if it is... Um, we're going to lock them up and torture them like we do with Bradley Manning or seek to prosecute them with WikiLeaks. And what is Obama doing with these extrajudicial killings? Um, he's appointed himself as judge, jury, and execution to kill bin Laden, to kill Awalaki, to come up with kill lists and executions. This is helpful to keep you know the masses in line, to keep power centralized. So yes, obviously, as the your previous... Um, uh, speaker has uh, been very ably discussed to further the interests of a capitalist class. But my interest has been in discussing this as the political aspect of how they um, suppress democracy to maintain their control. My final question for you, and Andrew uh, Colin, and then please, David Rosen, your final comment on the same. There is uh, one, one, one question. There's an old saying from Stanley Baldwin war would end if the dead could return. We never have a chance to see what it is to be a true victim and what people suffer for and why and how in all of our conflicts. We didn't care about the Agent Orange in Vietnam for the last 45 years. We didn't care about the one and a half million dead civilians. We don't care about the displaced and the dead in any place in any of our conflicts. So why should we suddenly develop a sensitivity to what happens to our neighbor on either side? We haven't, been, we haven't been outspoken or dynamic enough to go out and try to help them in their hour of need if their home's foreclosed on. All we do is pull down the blinds and hope that the day doesn't come when they knock on our door. Now here's the American media. The American media was supposed to be there to enlighten us, to inform us, to give us insights and understanding. Instead, all we have is a media that is extremely aligned with the official positions of both left and right. And therefore, people like yourself, Professor Andrew Colin, you're, I'm absolutely certain, on enemies list. And, and, mm. and David, for your articles, mm. you're, you're probably right up at the top of some of those lists, as is Chris Hatches and all of them. So what does it tell us about a society when the media does not jump between those who would suppress our rights of freedom of speech and, and our outspokenness and instead be complicit in condemning the Bradley Mannings or the Julian Assange and the WikiLeaks or yourself when you're trying to do nothing more than bring legitimate grievances of injustice and transgressions against our constitutional rights to the American public and that is the media that refuses to support we the people. Your both final closing thoughts. I just want to use one word here and keep my comments very brief to allow your other speaker more time. I want to use the word challenge. 
if there's anything that to me speaks volumes as to the in the way the message of the corporate media is not getting through about both these candidates who I feel in many fundamental issues are very similar if you look at Obama and we thought oh here's a big choice between him and, uh, and him and McCain well once Obama got into office he did everything that he accused McCain of doing once he got into office so to me I don't see all that much difference of an Obama or a Romney presidency besides the cultural issue rhetoric on the main issues of maintenance of the empire of supporting a capitalist class of keeping the police state going they're on the same page but my other thing my other comment is, as far as the election uh, pending election of 2012, which to me is a commentary and in part a rejection of the corporate media messages that most people in America don't vote. If you look at presidential elections, the, the bigger comment is that a lot of people sit out. They're not happy with the one-party system. They know that ultimately uh, the Democrat and Republican parties, except on some cultural issues, are basically the same. Now, as to some hope again, and here's my last comment, and I'll turn it over, is that the challenge will be, and this is what will be the long view, I call it, the political long view, is that we may not at first care of what's happening to somebody down the street, but what's increasingly happened is more and more people are feeling the crunch, as more and more people um, see their wages down to 1973 levels, is we're going to start to find a kinship with that person down the street as we feel more and more directly affected. And that will create uh, a, what I would refer to as a rising of a collective consciousness, at least a possibility, at least a possibility. Thank you. I appreciate your input. Final word to you, sure. David Rosen. Well, here's my, my final word is sort of, um, first of all, I appreciate the questions you've posed uh, this evening, because I, uh, I think they're very profound and, and really engaging, and, and I thank uh, you for inviting me. And second, I, I believe it's Andrew. I, I, I really learned something from listening to your presentation, so thank you for being part thank of this. Thank you. I learned much from you. Thank you. Um, tomorrow's 9-11 again. Hello. You know, we're, I live here in New York City and uh, was here for the 9-11. One of my daughters worked right down by the, Wall, by, uh, by the World Trade Center, and it was a scary, scary day. And that sort of resonates within my life, at least. It's something that was actually real in my lifetime that has never occurred uh, in, in the United States since the bur I mean, since 1812 with the burning, well, maybe since, since uh, at least the domestic, on, on the continental United States, since the burning of the, the White House in 1812, remember. That's the last kind of foreign, quote-unquote, invasion that the, that, the, that the continental United States experienced. So it's a profound moment. But what's more and equally interesting is that the following week, next Monday, is the first anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. And I think to, to, to recapture what Andrew was saying is no one saw Occupy Wall Street coming, and no one anticipated its profound reverberation through this country because they refused to play the party politics game. They refused to get trapped into leaders and agendas and all the kind of BS that essentially gets easily co-opted by the, by the political system, both Democrats and Republicans. And I think the fact that it came out of nowhere and, in fact, galvanized this country for, for weeks and weeks. And, in fact, and, and so it, its resonance is something that I think we should keep our, our ears and eyes open for as the crisis matures. And I think, and I'm hope, look, personally, I hope Obama wins the election because I think under Romney it's going to be horrible and even worse. I don't think Obama can solve the crisis, the structural crisis that I talked about earlier in terms of the really 
the globalization of the world economy and the you know, role, the shifting and declining role in the United States within that, and the consequences for what's called the middle class in this country, was was a moment. It was called the American century, and it lasted for approximately forty to fifty years. And it was really a blip in terms of if you go back through American history. It's really an exceptional moment in terms of the breaking of the class tyranny and the freeing of, of a lot of poor and working people to gain a better life. Well, I, and I think that's But the question is, it's, it's the resonance of that experience is, is in people's lives. They know about it. You know, we know about this stuff. The fact that you have a radio show that's on the Internet, it essentially breaks the tyranny in some small way of the dominant corporate media, which has lost all, all, I mean, people watch it, but it's lost all credibility. No one believes these fools. I agree, but I think, I think we also have to be very conscientious that Google and Apple and all the other internet providers uh, and Yahoo, these are also giving information about us and oh, access to us to the government, and the day will inevitably occur when we no longer have the same freedom of speech over the internet because it too will be deemed subversive or seditious and, we'll, we, you know, and I think that unless, unless enough people awaken the trouble is we don't have those people yet awaken because they're watching television distracting themselves. David Rosen thank you very much for your articles, for your good work and also Professor Andrew Colin. Thank you very much. Thank you Gary for fighting me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you for listening to Progressive Commentary Hour. Now, in 60 seconds, we're continuing live because I didn't want to rush our next guest talking about unheeded warning signs about 9-11 and a look at the terrors behind the Patriot Act. Please stay with us back in 60 seconds 